And I guess if, um, if you got into kind of a conversation with the right, uh, let's just say picky people, um, you know, it'd be hard to determine, ex- you know, kind of the exact starting point of when did Jesus kind of start on this road or when did he start journeying down this road? Some might say that, you know, it may be in John 12 when, um, you know, it says in verses 20 through 24, it says that some Greeks came to the temple and they said, you know, they, they immediately started trying to seek out Jesus and they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip and went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus' response is kind of curious. He just says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so for the first time, really, in Jesus' ministry, you have this unusual situation where these Gentiles deliberately seek him out, and for some reason it triggers Jesus kind of into a course change toward the cross by, you know, pointing out, first of all, the hour has come, which is, you know, throughout the New Testament, just an example of Christ being crucified. And then he goes on to say, he, like a grain of wheat, will fall into the ground and die, and as a result, produce much fruit. Now, other folks may be a little bit more philosophical, and they'll, you know, say, well, isn't Jesus the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world? So didn't the road to resurrection really begin before the earth existed? And um, that's a little too heady to pursue that conversation. But today we're going to kind of look at what I think is my recommendation for this kind of conversation, and that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I believe this text does it best in explaining Jesus kind of starting down this road because um, it talks about his struggle. You know, it, it's got this great struggle between human desire versus God's desire that's taking place there. And therefore, you know, this, he, in, in overcoming this, he kind of just sets his face like flint towards the cross. So this morning, as we look at surrendering to the Father's will, I pray that we will look at Christ surrendering to the Father's will and really be challenged ourselves to follow suit. So the first thing I want to look at here is that Jesus' surrender involves pain, okay? Jesus surrendering to the Father's will in this situation involves pain. And the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus' pain can be seen in what he said. Now, we can't deal with the Garden of Gethsemane unless we look at some of the other accounts of that same story. So we will be bouncing between Luke and Matthew a little bit. John just uses it as kind of an afterthought, so we won't be dealing with John. But uh, in Matthew's account, Jesus and the 11 leave the Lord's Supper, and then they go into the garden, and they kind of stop. And then Jesus takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee a little further along, and then they stop. And as he's walking with them, he says in verse 38 of Matthew 26, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, that term very sorrowful literally means to be surrounded by grief. Uh, Paralupo is the word, but basically peri, like perimeter, you know, surrounding kind of thing. And then the word for sorrow. And he says, I'm basically surrounded by sorrow. And then he goes on to even highlight it by saying even to death. And another way of putting it is Jesus was experiencing anguish that threatens his very life. So by what he said, Jesus' pain can very much be seen in this situation. The second thing, letter number B, is Jesus' pain can be seen in his physical reactions. 
verse 44 says that Jesus was in agony. That word agony literally is a, is a, a Greek word they use that kind of applies to a, a, an Olympic event. And it has to do with the struggle that happens in that particular event. It refers to kind of the, the trembling excitement and anxiety produced by the fear and, and tension before kind of a wrestling match or a fight. Just uh, not, not to elaborate too much, but when boxing happened in the Olympic Games back in the first century, you win by not dying, generally. They had gloves that were just bolts of lead, you know, around their hands. And, uh, and so you can kind of imagine the intensity needed before you had a boxing match or a fighting match that uh, you were either going to win or die. Kind of like Jesus here. And the second thing is in verse 44, it also says that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now there is a rare medical condition, and I'm going to try to get this name right, called hematohydrosis. Okay, hematohydrosis. I think that's the way it's pronounced. They say as long as you say it confidently, then that's the way it's pronounced. So hematohydrosis. And basically, it's a, a person who's under such tremendous stress that the blood vessels kind of burst, usually in the head or something like that, and a person literally sweats blood. And this would definitely kind of agree with the passage. Some people say the word like is in there, and so he's using a simile, and so it's really just lots of sweat that's falling off of Jesus. I tend to disagree because, first of all, it's in Luke. Luke is a doctor. He would know. Uh, but also I think that it just kind of fits in the, in the thing because it says, you know, Jesus was in agony. And then he, you know, increased his prayer as a result of that. And as a result of that, he sweat great drops of blood. D.A. Carson in his commentary on this says this, and I think this is really poignant. He says, dripping blood would be expected to describe the crucifixion, but no blood attends that narrative. The most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels occurs not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane in his decision to submit to the Father's redemptive will. And I looked, and there's really no blood mentioned in the cross. You know, there was a tremendous amount of blood at the cross, but it's not mentioned. But blood is mentioned here, really highlighting Jesus' struggle at this moment. The third thing, C, is Jesus' pain can be seen in his need for assistant. assistance. Excuse me. Every gospel has an account of this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, John's account, of course, is super short, almost kind of an afterthought. They kind of leave the Lord's Supper, show up at the garden, and then all of a sudden Judas just shows up and they're gone in, in, in John's account. It's only a few verses. And each account has similarities, but... You know, Matthew's and Mark's account is really close to identical, but there are some differences between them. And I think that just speaks to the authenticity of Scripture. You know, if you have a car accident outside, someone's going to say, the car was blue. No, it was green. You know, or different things like that, you know. And, and there's different perspectives on one particular event. That's just human nature, and it really shows that this is true. And here in Luke, only we see in verse 43 this appearance of an angel. It's not in any of the gospel accounts of this particular instance. And I think there are a couple of reasons why this is significant that this angel arrives to, to strengthen Jesus. And I think, first of all, 
just to highlight Jesus struggling, if you need an angel to come and strengthen you, chances are you are really weak. Just kind of a no-brainer. But second of all, I think when, is, is to kind of ask the question, when was the only other time an angel or angels came to assist Jesus? Does anyone know? In the desert, after the temptation, Right? It was in Matthew's account that, that Jesus being tempted by the devil, all of a sudden when he's done with that, has a couple of angels or just says angels arrived to minister to him. Now, can you imagine, just think about it, if you didn't have food for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I know technically you're dead. I know this is, there's some supernatural elements that are in here. But, but if you didn't have food after 40 days and 40 nights, and then on top of that, right after that, you face your mortal enemy, who basically with all of his might will attempt to destroy you mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as much as not eating for 40 days would destroy you physically. Needless to say, Jesus was truly hurting at that time and in need of angelic assistance. And so much like Jesus suffering prior to his temptation and then through his temptation and the needing angelic assistance afterwards, we can kind of equate that with the suffering that was going on with him at the Garden of Gethsemane, that it needed an angel. The second thing I want to look at is that Jesus' surrender involved a request. So in verse 42, I want to look at Jesus' request of God by saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So what does a request like this say about surrendering to the Father's will? What does it, what does it tell us about surrendering to the Father's will? Here's the first thing. Surrendering to the Father's will is a struggle to submit to God's will because of our human will. Look at verse 42. He says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What was the divine will for Jesus at this time? It was judgment. How do we know, how do we know that this is judgment? Well, Jesus mentions this cup. Now, did he have a literal copper cup that was sitting next to him? He's like, God, take it away. No, that's not what's happening there. He's basically using an, an Old Testament reference and even a New Testament reference, which hadn't been written yet, but he's using a reference for God's wrath. So, for instance, in Isaiah 51, verse 17, it says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And it's mentioned in Psalm 75, 8, it's mentioned in Jeremiah 25, it's mentioned in Habakkuk 2, 16, in Revelation 14 and 16, this, this cup that he's talking about here at the Garden of Gethsemane is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was really struggling here because he was about to face the judgment of God. The perfect Son of God was about to face the wrath of God, to have sin placed on your shoulders literally to become sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, and face the full wrath of God is in, in some capacity to be separated from the Father. Is in some capacity, you know, this, this humanity of Jesus was really struggling, and so he's asking, you know, is there any other way? And maybe that's your story right now. Most definitely on a much smaller scale, of course, but, but for you, maybe right now, you are struggling to submit to the Father's will. 
And the ultimate reason, let me tell you, is not circumstantial, it's not, you know, off schedule, it's not necessarily anything other than that, but, but the main reason people struggle with surrendering to the Father's will is that it boils down to one thing, and that is your human will is opposed to His divine will. And amazingly enough, because Christ went through this, I love Hebrews 4.15, Jesus can sympathize with that. Isn't that phenomenal? That you're struggling with submitting to God's will in a particular area of your life. Jesus says, I get that. If anyone should not get that, Jesus should not. But Jesus gets that. So in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus understands what it means to be weak, yet he surrendered to the Father's will. Letter B, it's an acknowledgement of the greatest reality. It's an acknowledgement of the greatest reality. What is the greatest reality? And, and here it is, folks. Here's the greatest, possibly that we could argue back and forth, but here's what I think is one of the greatest realities of the universe, and that is this. Their Father's will is always greater than yours. The Father's will is always greater than our will. God's will will always be greater. You might say, yeah, you know, I know. I mean, God is more powerful, therefore I am, therefore, you know, kind of, you know, his will is more powerful than my will. And there's no doubt that this is true, but I mean greater in every way. His will is greater in every way. Jesus says this powerful word here in verse 42, nevertheless. You know, he says, you know, let this cup pass from me, if you will, but nevertheless. And that word literally means much more or more important. So he's basically saying much more important than this cup passing from me, Father, is your will being done. I don't know about you, but having to face sin on my shoulders, never knowing sin, to become sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5, having to face, you know, the, the, you know, the bearing the sins of a bunch of ingrates, much, much less, you know, people are not going to go, so oh, thank you, or anything like that. Then going through the suffering of the cross, you know, the beating, the rejection, the mockery, the spitting, you know, all of these things, to face all of that. I would think that that would be a high priority on my list if I knew that was going to happen to me starting tonight. And he's saying, take this cup from me, but more importantly, your will be done. So a couple of things about this. First of all, his will is greater in priority. Notice he says, Father, your will be done. So here's the question. Do you know what gets done around your house? You say, nothing. Then there's the elbows, you know, or something like that. But do you know what gets done around your house? The things you want done, right? I love, there's a quote I heard one time, and that is just, uh, people do what they want to do, the rest is just excuses. And that's very true, you know. The things that get done around your house are the things you want to get done, the things you consider most important, the things that are a priority to you. Do you know what doesn't get done? 
everything else. Why? Because it's not a priority. Jesus, by saying, your will be done, means that his will is top priority. His will is greater in priority than all other things. But not only that, the second thing is his will is greater in results. Now think about it. What would have happened? Let's speculate for a moment. What would have happened if God said, okay, the cup has been taken away? Well, the only other possibly stated in Scripture option that we have is in Matthew 26 where Jesus, still in the Garden of Gethsemane, says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, God says, okay, I hear you, son. The cup has been taken away. Here are your angels. And the only purpose of the 12 legions of angels was what? Destruction of all humanity. So the 12 legions show up, and then, whew, like a lawnmower through the lawn, they cut through the world. End of, end of history. That is not a superior plan. But as a result of Christ saying, not my will, but yours be done, and, and doing the Father's will, as it says in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 11, here's what happens to Jesus. It says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's him doing the Father's will. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having given us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so the superior will of the Father for the Son was a, was a millisecond of excruciating, barbarian, torturous death, but a resurrection into eternal glory. And, and so God's superior will was, a, was kind of this excruciating death for the Son, but in that death, we would not be justly destroyed by angels and thrown into hell, but our sin debt, our sin record was literally nailed to the cross with him, and we are forgiven. That is a superior plan. Often, you know, we, when we point out this verse of, you know, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, sometimes the, the, the one teaching it will drift to, and people in hell will be forced to bow the knee and that sort of thing. Folks, people are going to be in heaven and gloriously bow the knee. And so for our eternal joy, Christ followed the superior plan of God's will rather than his own human will. So if you're struggling with surrendering to the Father's will, I can only say that the kind of the two worst things you could do are, number one, choose your will and reject his. That would be a disaster. But the second thing is to kind of believe that in doing so, you picked the better plan. You didn't. You didn't. If you say, well, I know that God wants me to this, or God wants me to surrender to him, God wants me to obey him in this area, or something like that, but, but I really want to be free, or I really want, this is much greater for my finances, this is much greater for my relationships, this is much greater for my pleasure. You chose the lesser plan. 
as it says, or as I've heard before say this, there would be no Calvary if there were no Gethsemane. And that's very true. So just to give you a little perspective, just to continue this thought for just a moment, Mark 8.36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? Now, having the whole world, if that were possible, could probably convince most people that the Father's will is somehow inferior, right? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you think that? Do the Father's will or you get the world. Travel wherever you want at any time you want. Have all the money you want. Have all the, you know, um, you know, you could send people to go get things for you. You know, and, and, and you know, you, you can just, your imagination would, would just go nuts in thinking about that, you know, having all the possessions and the food and the, the money and the power and, and that sort of thing. But Jesus says to possess your soul, which, you know, by the way, is slightly smaller than the world. Would, would be far greater than having something as vast as the world. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, for what can a man give in return for his soul? And it's kind of a sarcastic question, but he's basically saying that your soul is priceless. And so by following after your own will, you're just kind of chipping away at your soul. Kind of just losing pieces of your soul little by little by little as you choose to do what you want rather than what God wants. Pursuing after this rather than pursuing after holiness and righteousness. Doing these types of things is just a little chip, chip, chip away at your soul, and you'll lose your soul. So just to pick on the teenagers for a moment, this afternoon, child or teenager, when, when your will collides with your parents' will, let's say, what would be the will of the father in that situation? You know it well, your parents probably drilled it in your head, Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on this earth. Dad jokes aside like, yeah, I'll kill you. Um, kids and teenagers, what's going to happen then? Will you follow after the father's will? Husbands with your wives. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner and treat her with honor as the weaker vessel. Husbands, will you live with your wives in an understanding way, even though she's speaking Martian, and honor her? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He's not worth following, he does nothing to lead. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Our wills clash with the Lord's will a lot, and sometimes we try in our deceptive hearts to try to convince ourselves that our will is somehow superior to God's. And it's just not true. So the will of God for every facet of life is not a mystery, it's in His Word. And it's vastly superior to any counterclaims the human will may have. Third and final thing, Jesus' surrender involved a resolve.
What did Jesus say after he requested that the Father remove this cup from him? He said, nevertheless, your will be done. Which essentially, he says, you know, bottom line, do your will in me, Father. So what did Jesus do when, when he was experiencing great agony? He, he prayed more earnestly. In other words, you see these moments in this, in this small little 10-verse spot or whatever of, of when Jesus is confronted with his will colliding with, with God's will. You know, I'm in agony. Pray more, not run away and be comfortable. I'm in agony here. This is, this is the Father's will is for me to suffer. And the solution is not to get more comfortable or to escape or anything like that. No, he, he prays more. He digs in. But for this final point, I want us to kind of look over at the Matthew account. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew, of course, and at least in his account, gives a more detailed account of the story. In Luke, we think that Jesus goes out to pray once, comes back, finds them sleeping, and then all of a sudden Judas arrives. We learn from Matthew and also from Mark that it happens three times. We learn a little bit more about uh, Matthew, in Matthew, what Jesus says in the garden a little bit. And um, it's just a, just a different facet of the story from the sources that they had. And, uh, and, and, and being there and other things like that. And that's just them sharing their, you know, kind of particular viewpoint. I said sources because that's Luke. But Matthew was there. And so Matthew chapter 26, we're going to look at verses 36. And we're going to stop at verse 42, although there's more to the story there. But we're going to stop there. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, yet, I mean, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you just watch, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then verse 42, he says, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And the thing I want to focus on is the statement in verse 42, my father at this cup you know, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Now, we understand, you know, with the cup analogy that, of course, the concept of drinking is going to be used for embracing the Father's will. You know, if the cup symbol is a symbol of, of God's will versus his own human will, then the drinking aspect is kind of a natural flow from that illustration. But it is also a very personal and beautiful picture of the, of the resolve needed for surrendering to the Father's will. You know, he's basically saying, when it, when it comes to your will, Father, I will drink it down. I will drink this down. What an amazing picture when our wills come clashing against Father's will, and he says, you know, this is how you ought to behave. This is how you ought to act. This is what my scriptures say. 
and we have to sometimes gulp. We have, to, we have to take it in. We have to internalize it. It is something that becomes part of us. It's not this, you know, outside thing that we kind of pick up and play with every once in a while like a child's toy. But we internalize his will. So Jesus says, when it comes to your will, Father, I will drink it down. And he did. With every swing of the whip, with every tear of his flesh, with every spit in his face, with every, you know, moment where he was silent before his accusers, all of those things are just representative of the, fa- the, of the, of the very fact that, you know, when it came to the Father's will in his life, it wasn't something that was just kind of, you know, oh, it's, it's helpful for me here, I'll set it aside here or anything like that. No, he became a living embodiment of the Father's will. He drank it down. And I want to finish with just this quote from Spurgeon. It's my favorite quote from Spurgeon. It's only 16 paragraphs long, you know, because Spurgeon had a lot of words. Um, I'm kidding. But anyway, um, just just listen to this, and, and, and he does a really good job of just kind of illustrating this concept. He says, Christ took every sin of all his people and suffered every stroke of the rod of punishment on account of those sins. He had compounded it, excuse me, he had compounded into one awful drought the punishment of the sins of all the elect. He took the cup. He put it to his lips. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood while he tasted the first sip thereof. But he never desisted, but drank on and on and on till he exhausted the very dregs. And turning the vessel upside down, he said, it is finished. And at one tremendous drought of love, the Lord God of salvation had drained damnation dry. Not a dreg, not the slightest residue was left. He had suffered all that ought to have been suffered, had finished transgression, and made an end of sin for his people. Jesus surrendered to the Father's will. Not just taking on some new thing or anything like that. He became the Father's will. So, child and teenager, become the Father's will this afternoon when your parents tell you no. Husbands, become the Father's will and lay your lives down for your wives, even though you don't understand a thing that's going on right now. And wives, lay your life down for your husband and follow after him. And single person, you lay your life down too for anyone and everyone. And so we serve the Lord. Because I tell you what, as soon as you leave here, and it probably will happen before that, your will is going to crash with the Father's will. And it will be on an infinitely small scale versus what Christ went through. And yet Christ says, follow me. Let's be those types of people as we prepare our hearts for the road to the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us who might be struggling right now with resisting your will. I pray, God, that they might see that your will is superior in power, so you do win. You eventually win, O oh God. 
But God, I pray that they will see that your will is superior in results as well. Lord, that whatever they're hanging on to, whatever they're struggling with, whatever sin is standing in the way of their complete surrender to you, I pray, oh God, that that sin will be seen for what it is, filthy, nasty, horrible, pride. It does not have their best interest in mind. But you do, oh God. You proved it in sending your son who surrendered to your will. And yes, he did suffer, but his suffering was small in comparison to his glory. And our suffering in the forsaking of all things to follow after you will be a small suffering in comparison to the glory we have in you. So I pray, oh God, that you will just do business in our hearts, reveal to us any area of our life where we say, no, I can't do that, I can't do that, I cannot do that, and show us that by your grace you love us, you empathize, you sympathize with our weaknesses, but you also empower us to say yes in surrendering to, you, in surrendering to your will. And I pray and ask these things in Christ's name, amen.